morning, everyone. It's really fun to be to, <clears throat> together with our family, brothers and sisters, encouraging each other. Brett did a great job. We really appreciate that, brother. Thanks. All right, this morning I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extra. Just raise your hand. You're welcome to keep the Bible. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting for the first time, we believe the Bible is God's Word. So some of us, at least myself, I didn't grow up in a church where they taught from the Bible, so it was all new. But it, it, it totally transformed me, and I hope it will have a transforming effect in your life. So if you're just beginning with us, you're like, what in the world are we doing with numbers? Well, the Bible says all scriptures are inspired by God. They're God's truth. And the Old Testament story of the Israelites, we learn from the New Testament, happened as an example for us. So we read their story, and we see a lot of parallels to our story. They were redeemed by the blood of a lamb, and they were on their way to a promised land. But on the way, they had to wander in the wilderness. And we're on this journey wandering through this world, seeking the kingdom of God, if you're a forgiven follower of Christ. And the book of Numbers has three sections. The first nine chapters, they were preparing to leave Mount Sinai and, and go into the promised land. But... 10 through 19, where we are in the middle of this, they made so many mistakes and so many continual failures that God told them the entire generation will die in the wilderness. They won't be able to enter the promised land. So we're just about at the end of this when we read a really interesting passage about a red heifer, this red cow that was significant in the history of the nation of Israel. Now, the context for this is... is, is Important to, to, to back up a little bit and realize that from the beginning when God created Adam and Eve, the moment Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, God made clear that, that that puts a breach in the relationship. Sin separates people from God. It doesn't have to be murder. When we disobey God, we're separated from him. And he uses all kinds of analogies to describe that. He'll say we're in the darkness. But he'll often use analogies from the realm of hygiene. The Bible speaks of our sins as making us filthy, as being impure, as being stained, and as being unclean. And so God wanted us to realize the seriousness of sin and the necessity of being forgiven, of having those sins washed away, or we can't be in his presence. And so when he brought his people out of Egypt, he gave them what's called the law of Moses. And even though it had 10 commandments to summarize the, the issues of loving God and others, there were 614 smaller commandments that, that spoke to all different areas of life. And many of them had a symbolic picture to them. There wasn't anything particularly evil about eating pork. It was just to demonstrate the separation between the clean and the unclean. So the book of Leviticus is filled with instructions about what will make you unclean and how to get clean. But when we come to Numbers 19, we're going to have this chapter about this bull that they're supposed to burn or this red heifer that they're supposed to burn, and they can use the ashes of it to, to keep getting clean. It's like their, their shout spray, so to speak. And it's, it's quite fascinating because in the Old Testament, many things could make you unclean. If you ate the wrong food, the, 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 the unclean, non-kosher food, if you had leprosy, you were unclean. But if you touched a dead body, 
Where does that seem? In the Old Testament, if you touched a dead body, that made you unclean. And whenever you were unclean, you couldn't be in God's presence until you got cleansed again. So what, what this chapter tells us is, what happens if you touch a dead body and how to get clean again? Now, we're going to learn that today it's not touching a dead body that makes us unclean. These are all symbols. But let's begin in Numbers 19, and we'll, we'll start in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statue of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. Now, there's going to be a lot of red in here. So, kind of like the ginge of, of cattle, right? It's, they're, they're not real common. There's going to be a red heifer. They're going to use red scarlet. They're going to use red cedar. And there's going to be shed blood. And all of this red will, will point us. Even the heifer itself is going to point us to Jesus. Even the idea that this heifer would have no blemish, Christ was sinless, and no yoke on it, perhaps to symbolize that Jesus willingly gave himself, that he wasn't bound or dragged to give his life for us. So unlike the normal sacrifice where the high priest did it, God says to Moses, you shall give it to Eliezer the priest. He was Aaron's son. And then unlike how they would sacrifice it and inside the, 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 the tabernacle area, and offer it on the altar. This one, it says you'll bring outside the camp and slaughter it in Eliezer's presence, outside the camp. Next, Eliezer shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. If this was a cooking channel, verses 1 through 9 is the recipe. This is how to prepare it. And then chapter 10 is how to serve it, okay? Now, even that, you, you take some of this blood and then you, you sprinkle it on the, the tent of meeting. But it's interesting. We'll learn from the New Testament that Jesus entered into heaven and sprinkled his blood. And the Bible tells us that we come to the heavenly city and the sprinkled blood of Christ. So just keep Jesus in the back of your mind. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood with its refuse shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop, which was a plant, it had like a cottony end to it, and that was what was used to apply it. Scarlet material cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes and, in water and bathe and shall be unclean until evening. Now, this is quite odd. A clean person burns a heifer to clean the unclean, but in burning this heifer, he becomes unclean. You're like, wait, what? And again, there's a mystery to this, perhaps somewhat like that great transaction in the New Testament where the Bible says God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that then we could be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So the end of the recipe is verse 9. A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. So throughout the rest of the history of the, of the Old Testament, Jewish people kept some ashes from a red heifer. 
In fact, we're going to learn from some extra-biblical literature that, according to Jewish tradition, they've only offered ten heifers, nine heifers so far. And, and they, they have that, that special sauce, so to speak. It's like the recipe. It's like the, when mom's cooking, you know, this is a little pot of the ashes that they would use. And notice that it was to cleanse from sin. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer, verse 10, shall wash his clothes and be unclean, and it shall be a perpetual, that's a constant statue to the sons of Israel. So, so keep this stuff on hand. You're going to need it, right? This wasn't just something for, the, for that generation. But now, now they're going to learn how to apply it. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. Now, now that seems... Uh, one commentator said this was perhaps the most difficult and exacting of all of the Mosaic laws. Because think about how many people were dying, right? There were, there were a million people in the wilderness and the entire older generation had to die off. And so inadvertently you were almost bound to be exposed to a dead body in some respect. But in the Old Testament, if you touched this corpse, you were unclean for seven days. That person shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water. So they would have the water and the ashes on the third and seventh day. So it seems kind of odd. And then he will be clean. Now, I can imagine that some people would, would, would have a thought in their mind. That, that's, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. I'm not, I don't have time for this stuff. I'm mourning the death of my loved one. But it reminds us that as, as forgiven followers, God's ways on our ways and and so we need to be submissive and say, okay, well, while this might seem like a small thing to us, it was important to God and to them. Because he said, if you don't purify yourself, you will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and doesn't purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. Now notice, that person shall be cut off. I want to put your mind at ease. The Bible tells us that when Christ died, we're no longer under the law of Moses. So when someone dies today, don't feel as though if you touch them or around them that somehow you have become unclean. In fact, when my father died of a heart attack, I remember hugging and, and kissing him as, as I was saying goodbye. So just to put you at ease. But remember that, that we're like, why does God do that? And again, many of these things were symbolic. Death was the consequence of sin. Death was the ultimate curse of sin. Death is the final consequence of sin. The Bible says everyone who's not clean, whose name is not in the book of life, will be put into a lake of fire away from the presence of the Lord. This is the second death. So the symbolism here of touching death is that you're contaminated by sin. That's the thing that God wants us to recognize, that no one's going to enter into his heaven who's contaminated with sin. We're going to read later about how in the city of God, nothing unclean shall enter it. This is the law, it says, when a man dies in a tent, everyone who comes into the tent, everyone in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Every open vessel which has no covering tied down shall be unclean. And anyone who's in the field who touches one who has been slain with a sword, or who has died naturally, or even a bone, or a grave. If you step on a grave, you're unclean for seven days. Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes from the sin and flowing water, and shall be added to a vessel. And then a clean person, you have to have somebody else do it. Somebody who's not unclean takes the hyssop, 
and, and dips it in that water and sprinkles it on the tent, the furnishing, and on the persons. And the one who touched the slain, dying naturally, or the grave, that clean person shall sprinkle it on them on the third and seventh day and purify him from his uncleanness. Then he'll wash his clothes, bathe himself, and he'll be clean. And again, the big picture here is, think about us as Christians. What would it look like for us to be unclean? And what do we need to do to get clean so that we're not separated from our relationship with God? Wrong one. But the man who is unclean, and I think this is for those people who are not doing that, the man who's unclean and doesn't purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly. Why? Because he's defiled the sanctuary of the Lord, and the water from impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He's unclean. Now, again, think about our pluralistic society right now where everybody has their own idea about who gets to go into heaven, and everybody can do it their way, and God's gone, no. I decide how to get clean, and if you don't come through my way, you're going to be cut off. And actually, that's a very loving act on God's part to even offer something to allow us to be cleansed. So again, God's going, this is a reminder. This is a perpetual, eternal statute. This is an ongoing statute. He who sprinkles shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water shall be unclean. And anything that the unclean person shall be unclean, and person who touches is it unclean till the evening. And you go, wow, hmm. What do I make of that? Well, we'll, we'll come back, but just, just kind of let that sit in your mind. And, and the Bible says all Scripture is profitable for our instruction. Okay, so we're going to wind around in a moment and, and talk about, okay, what does this have to do with us today? But then we come to a really interesting section of the book because we're right near the end of 40 years. Okay? So Moses has put up with these people for 40 years. Several times when God was so angry with them that he was going to destroy them, Moses stepped in and pled with God, spare them for your glory. But now Moses is going to make a, a grievous mistake that will have lifelong consequences. And, and it's, a, it's a great reminder for us to think about our relationship with the Lord. So remember, we're near the end now. They're about to go into the land. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh, and Miriam died and was buried there. Now, you remember Miriam. We see her in the book of Exodus, Moses' older sister who, who negotiates with Pharaoh's daughter to, to have her own mother, Moses' mother, wean him. Later on in Exodus 15, when they cross the the Red Sea, and they have this great celebration. Moses leads the, the congregation. She's called Miriam, or Miriam rather, leads the congregation, Miriam the prophetess. So she was a highly regarded leader in Israel. Remember we saw in Numbers her jealousy of Moses and that temporary leprosy. But now she dies, and, 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 and we sort of get a shout out to her. But then I feel like I'm watching the same bad dream over again. There was no water for the congregation. Remember, you're traveling in the, in the desert. Some, sometimes you're at an oasis, sometimes you're not. And again, they assemble against Moses and Arian, and they contend with him, saying, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. And, and you sometimes go, the insanity of our sin is, 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 is staggering at times. The dumb things we say when we're 
mad at God or mad at everybody else. I mean, they, they had just recently watched God swallow up Korah. Fire came down from heaven, and now they're thirsty, and they're going, we'd be better if he just nuked us too. You're like, what are you talking about? That, that's unreasonable. That doesn't even make sense. One of these days, I'm going to learn how to press the forward hour. So look what they said. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? And it's not a place of grain or figs or vine or pomegranates. There's not even any water. And how many times has Moses heard this? How many times has he gone, oh, my word. Here they go again. Look at verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. You know what crossed my mind here? What do you do if your spouse is coming on a little strong? Now, I know that doesn't happen, but if your spouse is coming on a little stronger, what does your spouse do if maybe you're coming on a little strong? I wonder if that's not a bad idea. Go pray. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. What an example Moses was. He doesn't even bother trying to reason with the people he just goes before God and he falls on his face. And it is a good reminder for us. Um, Tammy has learned well to just go pray <laughs> as I'm trying to learn. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them and God shows up. Suddenly the Shekinah appears again. And the Lord spoke to Moses and he says, take the rod. Now you remember that rod, that same rod that, that Moses held up to part the Red Sea, quite, quite symbolic right? Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, and assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. Now, if you've read the Old Testament story, you remember way back earlier in the story, years and years before this, they had an incident where they were dying of thirst, and God said to Moses, I want you to go out to that rock over there and strike the rock with your rod and water will come out. Now we learned from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that that rock had a deep symbolism. The Apostle Paul says, remember our fathers, they passed through the Red Sea and they drank from the rock. And this is what it says. And the rock who followed them was Christ. And so it, even in Jewish tradition, there's this sense that there was a, a, a rock that would move around in the desert, right? And they, they didn't understand that this was Jesus himself, but there's quite a deep symbolism here. This rock is nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so God's instructions are really important. The first time he said, strike the rock. This time he says, I want you to speak to the rock. It's been suggested, though it's hard to say. I mean, it doesn't say this, but was there a symbolism of Christ being stricken for our sins and then the speaking would then be symbolic of the resurrection? But whatever it was, Moses is so aggravated that he doesn't do it the right way. God says, this is how you'll do it. You'll bring forth water. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. Now, at this point, we're going to learn that Moses is mad. He is angry. And so he storms out. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he says, listen now, you rebels. 
shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Now I want you to think about the wording there. Shall we bring forth water? We all know that sometimes people use we. What do you mean we? Who's bringing forth this water, Moses? I, I, I think there's something to that based on how God corrects him later. So bear that in mind. So he's angry. You rebels, shall we bring forth water? And then God had said, listen, speak to the rock. Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock. Not just once, but twice. Wham, wham. But what happened? He didn't do it God's way. But water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drank. Just a slight note. Sometimes when people do God's work, they, they, they won't always do it God's way. They might put people in leadership that the Bible clearly teaches shouldn't be in leadership. And sometimes we look at that and we say, well, hey, it worked. You know, people got saved. Remember that God's going to bless his word. He's going to bless his work. But if we don't do God's work God's way, sometimes we'll have our own personal consequences. So now God calls Moses in. He goes, we need to talk about that. Now, in my mind, okay, so the guy got a little ticked. I mean, good grief, 40 years putting up with these people. But God knows our hearts, and there's something so serious to this that Moses really gets what, from our standpoint, would be like a bad deal. Let's look at the consequences. God's looking down, and Moses goes, you rebels, we want some water, we'll bring it up, bam, bam. And God goes, Moses, can we talk? The Lord said to Moses, I want you to think about the, the elements of what's going on here. He says, number one, you didn't believe me. Okay, so Moses, whatever you just did out there, you did that out of unbelief. You didn't believe me. To treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Hey, you're in leadership, and they're watching you. Remember the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. You didn't set me apart. You didn't honor me. You didn't do it my way. You didn't, you didn't give the glory in the appropriate way. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now, I want you to think about that. From the, from the get-go, when God first called Moses, I'm going to take you out of this bondage of Egypt, and we're going to go to a land that's beautiful, flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be awesome. And that's, that's their hope. That's what kept them going. Just like believers today are like, man, my life might be horrible now, but at least I'm going to be in the, the land of promise, right? And God says to Moses, no, you're not going to go in. I'll let you look at it, but you're not going in. Now, if you read the story later, Moses had a hard time with this. He, he disputed with God. He's going, come on, God, just let me go in. And God goes, speak no more to me about this. These are the waters of Meribah, which means contention, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. Now, I'm going, wow, Lord, that's, that's, that's hard. And we'll come back to that. Because I want us to talk about some of the, the ways in which God wants us to be careful to give him glory. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Now, the Edomites were related to the Israelites. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. The Israelites are descendants of Jacob. 
in order to get into the promised land, the shortest route is to go right through Edom, which is south of the promised land. So, so Moses shows up. He says, hey, you mind if we just cut through here? We're not going to take any of your food. We're not even going to drink your water. Just passing through. And so they ask, can we go? And so Moses says, your brother Israel has said, you know our hardship. You, you, you've, been, you've been following us on the news. You know what's going on. Can we pass through your land? The Lord heard our voice. Please let us pass through. We, we won't even drink water from your well. We'll just go along the king's highway. We won't turn to the right or the left. Just let us go through. Edom, however, said to him, no, you shall not pass through. Or I will come out with a sword against you. And, and we're going to read of this constant tension between the the descendants of Edom and the Israelites, much like the, the tension that still goes on between the Palestinians and the Jews. Again, the sons of Israel said, oh, wait a minute, we, we'll just go up by the highway. We won't drink your water. I'll eat. If anybody drinks, I'll pay for it. Let's just pass through. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force, a strong hand, and Edom refused to allow him. He stood at the door, so to speak. You're not coming through here. No. Not sure that was a good idea. Remember God when he first called, actually I'm sure that wasn't a good idea. When he first called Abraham, he said, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. So Edom refused to allow them to pass through. The whole congregation came to Mount Hor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses by the border of the land of Edom saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land which I have not given, or I've given to sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command. So now Aaron's going to die. Take Aaron and his son, bring them up to Mount Hor, strip off of his high priestly garments and put them on his son, because Eliezer is going to take over as the high priest. And so he did as the Lord commanded him. And Aaron died on the mountaintop, and then they came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for 30 days. Now, one of the things that we've continued to, to do as we're reading through, for those of you who are leading Bible studies, our, our small group leaders, those of you who are moving along and not just becoming a disciple, but making disciples, we're all learning that whether it's in my own Bible reading or as I'm teaching and, and learning and growing and reading, that we always want to stop after we read the scriptures and say, okay, how does this apply to me? If all Scripture is profitable, if all Scripture points to Christ, then surely there are some applications for us today. And, and we learn to do that. We learn that there are false teachers who twist Scripture, and then we're told to rightly divide the word of truth. And this is one of the things that, as pastors and spiritual leaders, we're trying to teach people how to study the Bible on their own, teach it to their children, and bring out relevant applications. So the first application I want you to think about is this, is that as Christians, just like the Old Testament people needed to, to keep themselves clean, today God's requiring the same thing from his people, and that is to walk in cleanness. There's this, there's this mystery to the gospel that says, when you come to Jesus, you are completely forgiven. We are blood-washed saints. Jesus didn't just wash away my past. He washed away my presence. He washed away my future sins. We are completely washed. And one day the Bible says God will pre prevent us spotless in his presence. Clean. And we celebrate that. We sing about that. But there's this 
side to that that says even though we're clean once and for all, we need to continually keep ourselves clean. When Jesus washed Peter's feet, he said, he that is bathed is completely clean but needs only to wash his feet, and you are clean but not one of you. And so what, what, what I want you to think about here is that this chapter, this red heifer, reminds us that even though we're forgiven, there are things that we do or don't do or think or ways that we act that cause us to become stained again. And so what we learn from the New Testament in 1 John is that God is light, there's no darkness in Him. So we're called to walk in fellowship while the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from our sin. Something very interesting in, in the Hebrew extra-biblical writings called the Mishnah, they've kept a careful record about this red heifer. They believe that the first one was offered by Eliezer, the second one by Ezra, and that there's been nine that have been offered since then. But they have a tradition in their writings that the tenth one, the tenth red heifer offering will be offered by the Messiah, the king himself. And I'm going, they're close. But the tenth one is Messiah, the king. And as Christians then, we're told on a regular basis, when you know you've sinned, and I know I've sinned, I don't just go, well, whatever, I'm forgiven. I put my bumper sticker on. I confess it. The Bible says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's this ongoing reminder as I think about the red heifer, how I want to keep my, myself clean before the Lord. And there's three things I want you to think about. Number one, it's always ideal to refrain from what's going to stain us. Psalm 15 says, who will enter into the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. So as, as the, the ideal thing is out of, out of gratitude for Christ and independence on the Holy Spirit that we don't do things that stain us. But if and when we do, we quickly confess them for, for two reasons. Number one, because if we don't, the Bible teaches that our fellowship with God is hindered. It can affect your marriage. Guys, if you're being mean and rude to your wife, if you're, if you're oppressive and selfish. 1 Peter 3 says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers aren't hindered. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard that there's sin in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. So there's a very practical way to apply this, and that is when I know I've messed up, I need to run to Jesus and ask him to forgive me and seek to turn away from that. And he freely continues to cleanse me. But there's another element to this which is really cool, and that is this. I want God to use me. And I think if you're a Christian, you do too. I mean, that's part of the new life. I'm born again. I have the Spirit in me. God works in me to will and work for His good pleasure. But I'll just tell it, tell it to you as frankly as I can. If you're not seeking to keep yourself clean, God's not going to use you. You're like, well, what do you mean? 2 Timothy chapter 2 speaks about vessels. It says, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but some to honor and dishonor. Paul says to Timothy, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, in other words, he deals with sin, and the sins in that passage had to do with false teachers, sinning, departing from iniquity, lust, and so forth. He says, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be useful to the master. So from now on, 
what I want to suggest is an easy way to remember this is don't wind up sitting in the dishwasher. You're like, well, what do you mean? I, we have a lot of mugs. My wife loves mugs. Sometimes it drives me crazy at Christmas. She brings out all these extra mugs. I'm like, please, we can't even fit them in there. But I only have a couple go-to mugs. Those are my boys, and, I, and I'm looking for them, right? And I do not like when they're in the dishwasher and it has not been run. But if that's the case, they're off the team for a time, right? I'm not going to use them. And when we just get away from the Lord, we're not reading His Word, we're not trying to seek Him, we're not trying to keep our accounts short and walk with Jesus, we're in the dishwasher. And it stinks in there. And sometimes it gets hot in there. The Bible says those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And unfortunately, even in Moses, it seems so severe, but sometimes a, 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 a great breach and a... And, and a a disobedience can have ongoing consequences. We're still forgiven, but Moses had to reap what he sowed. And so there's a real encouragement for us to say, Lord, make us a, a church that seeks God and wants to have clean hands and pure hearts. We're not perfect. I say all the time this is a hospital, but we certainly don't want to be hypocrites that we come and we, we worship with our lips when our hearts are are unclean and, and we think ourselves to be so religious and we go home and get angry. James says... If you think you're religious and you can't bridle your tongue, your religion's worthless. He says, this is pure religion when we visit orphans and widows in their distress and we keep ourselves unstained by the world. So as you think about the red heifer, praise you, Jesus, for your precious blood. I'll never have to wonder where the, the ashes are. The blood of Jesus abides forever. Secondly, we need to learn from Moses to be careful to trust Obey God and give him the glory. I think those are the three things that Moses messed up. Number one, he didn't trust God. God said, you didn't believe me. Okay? So if God says something in the Bible, come hell or high water, whether I feel like it's working or whether I feel like it's going to work out, God says, believe me, there is great blessing when we trust the Lord with all of our heart. Even if we go, if I do that, I don't see how it's going to work. If we believe God then we will obey God. You see, there's a, there's a great connection between unbelief and disobedience. That at the heart of when we fail to obey God, it's because we don't believe that God's way will work. That I'm not going to be happy or this won't fulfill me or somehow I've got to take it into my hands. And God says, trust me with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. But Lord, even if they're not the right one for me in my relationship, I got nobody else on the horizon. And God's gone. That's where faith comes in. Lord, if I, if I give generously and I pay my taxes, I won't have enough left. And God goes, trust me and then obey me. And then there's another thing that we learn in terms of trusting and obeying God. We need to be careful to, to give God the glory, to give him the credit. I think that's where Moses dropped the ball. And we've all done the same thing. We forget that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We forget that God's work is done not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. So as a church, whatever God's doing in our lives and in our own story, that we carefully direct the praise to him. Oh, God, this is your church. This is your work. And, and though we might go through hardships, help us to trust you. Even if, if my life's blowing up in front of me, help me not to, to lose it. Because... Sometimes we sacrifice a permanent blessing on the altar of our immediate anger. And so we say, dear God, help me. I'm very angry at this. 
help me. Help me to pray through this. Help me through the Holy Spirit to have self-control so I don't say something and do something in my anger that then will have ongoing consequences. And if I do those things and I have consequences, then I learn to accept them and say it was good for me to be afflicted. The psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your word. And sometimes when God disciplines us, we have to accept that. I remember spanking one of my children once when they were little for deliberate disobedience. It wasn't out of anger. But they said, when, when I was done, could you please leave the room now? And I think sometimes when God disciplines us, we sort of have that. Could you please leave the room now? And thankfully, God loves us so much. He's like, okay. But Hebrews 12 says when God disciplines us, we need to learn from it to humble ourselves and get up and make straight paths for our feet. Last final thought, and that is this, that one day the Lord Jesus is going to come from heaven, and the Bible says there's going to be a a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem. But listen to what it says in Revelation 21. Describes this beautiful heavenly city, brilliant with costly stone, but then it says this, nothing unclean shall enter into it. No lying, no one who practices abomination. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, I don't care if you've been to church a million times, you need to ask yourself, have I been washed God's way through the blood of Jesus? Because there are too many people in America, number one, who don't believe this, who don't, to, don't accept the gospel of grace, don't understand that it's only through the blood of Christ that God saves us freely. He'll wash us when we repent and we say, God, have mercy. I believe that Christ paid it all. I don't need to go to purgatory. I don't need to do penance. I accept the blood of Jesus as the full and final sacrifice. And when you put your faith in Christ, the Bible says you're washed in his blood. So for those of you who have been resisting that, please come to Jesus, believe in him, ask him to wash it, he will. But there's also a danger for those who say, oh yeah, when I was five years old, I raised my hand. I went to Backyard Bible Club. The Bible says that no one deceive you. No liar, no fornicator, no thief, no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God. There are people who claim to be cleansed, but live in continual sin. And so I want to urge you to examine and just say to yourself, if you are washed in the blood, live that way. Second Peter lists some qualities that Christians by grace are to grow in. And he says, if you lack these qualities, you have forgotten that you've been purified from your sins. My mom used to tell me when I was little, I could dress you in your church clothes and by the time you got down to the bottom of the steps, you were dirty. Hard to imagine. But in the same way, God washed us in his blood. So we don't want to take advantage of that and say, oh, well, you know, I, I got my credit card. But rather we say, Lord, help me to live with a desire to be holy and pleasing to you. By your spirit, fill me and help me to make decisions and, and, and values and be a father, a husband, a child, a parent that's pleasing to the Lord. And pray for us to do the same. It's all by God's grace and it's all for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. This is a, a really cool passage. Thank you for the red heifer that points us to Jesus. Thank you that we never have to search for the ashes because the blood of Christ is at the right hand of God, sufficient for our sin. We praise you for cleansing us. We pray that we'll go forth and love one another today and we'll advance your gospel. Forgive us all when we fail to give you glory. We fail to trust you. 
and we fail to obey you. Lord, help us to walk with you until we enter the promised land. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.